Well, thank you for meeting with me today. Thank you. So good to see you. <laughs> so good to see you too. Welcome to Fishhawk, where we tell the stories of manners working to make the world a greener place. This is your host, Kate Shamba. I met with a good friend of mine and former shipmate, Carrie Whitaker, at a coffee shop in Midcoast, Maine, before the 2020 pandemic. I apologize in advance for the background noise. Carrie is a chief scientist on board the Sea Education Association, or SEA, vessels. And we met to talk about the program and what research they were focusing on. Sailing on board the tall ships, the Robert C. Siemens in the South Pacific, and the Corps with Kramer in the North Atlantic, she leads intensive courses and research projects which focus on marine ecosystems. What is Sea Semester? What is SEA? Sea Education Association, or Sea Semester, is a alternative abroad program for undergraduates, but we also have programs for high school students that involve some time in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, but most of the focus is on um, getting folks out to sea and sailing and doing oceanography. So it's um, interdisciplinary, research-based education, and um, all focused around the ocean, building ocean stewards, and getting people inspired about why the ocean matters, and learning how to sail. Why ships? Besides the novelty of a sailing vessel. So, SEA was kind of built out of the sail training, pedagogy, community, (laughs) getting people out, out to sea and learning how to sail as kind of a, you know, a leadership opportunity. Yeah. Kind of started with like, you know, getting young boys out there. Like a lot of outdoor <laughs> education <laughs> was about. Which is but ironic because <laughs> most of the participants are actually young women. They're now. women now, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's kind of where it started. Um, with with a lot of outdoor education. But, you know, it's it's evolved, right? So there's a lot of value of getting people out on sailing vessels because they learn how to collaborate and work with one another and build um, wilderness skills and teamwork, communication, all of these skills that are very transferable to whatever you do in the future as a human or in your career. (laughs) And then um, SEA is unique because they have full oceanographic research labs on these sailing vessels. There's the Corrith Kramer, student sailing vessel Corrith Kramer in the... Atlantic and the Robert C. Siemens in the Pacific (laughs) and their student sailing vessels which is a unique um, designation because it means that the students are crew there are no passengers on these vessels Um, so a lot of value for teamwork building collaboration leadership but also an opportunity to study the ocean from a scientific perspective because we have um, a full suite of oceanographic instrumentation and laboratory. What kind of research are you doing? Um, so I'm an oceanographer, like classically trained mm-hmm. as biological oceanography. Um, as a chief scientist with SEA, um, I help direct the science plan for all of the all of the trips that we do. Uh, there's a huge benefit to SEA's repeat cruise tracks. So we have programs that um, go north or go south. In the Atlantic, 
in the, the springtime and then north in the you know in the summertime. Um, same with the Pacific, that these repeat cruise tracks that basically transit the South Pacific from Hawaii to Tahiti to New Zealand. Um, and as we're doing these repeat cruise tracks, um, re repeat transects of these ocean basins, we're able to collect data on biodiversity, on zooplankton, as you know, of phytoplankton, <laughs> <Yeah>. selps, <laughs> um, and plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. um, and be able to look at how these things have changed over time. Yeah. And do you monitor other things like temperature and acidity and what is acidity? And <laughs> <laughs> we measure pH. We measure um, the features of the ocean bottom using uh, sound echo um, location. We measure temperature. We measure you know, the physical, the chemical, the biological components of the ocean. Um, yeah, which gives us a good good time series. I think this is one of the strongest time series that SEA has is their plastic mm -hmm. pollution time series, which has been collected from nettos. Um, so since you know 1973, when SEA started, they've been towing new stun nets, which skim across the surface of the water at that interface between the ocean and the atmosphere and collect things that are floating on the top. And um, it's from that data set that SEA has been able to look at how small plastic pieces have accumulated in the ocean and across ocean basins um, for, for decades now. It's a strong data set. Um, plastic is a easy thing to measure in that way because it doesn't break down. So samples of plastic and enumeration of plastic since the 1970s, is, you, know, you can go back and look at samples um, and get a really powerful understanding of how, how much that's ac accumulated in our oceans. I decided to ask about the island of plastic that's said to be drifting around the South Pacific Ocean. Heard of it? It's rumored to be twice the size of Texas or three times the size of France. Could there really be a floating island out there? There's this, you know, this myth that there's a floating garbage patch. Um, what happens when plastic gets into the ocean, we now know is that it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and um, can accumulate in, in fish and bioaccumulate. Um, so, yeah, pass through the food chain. Um, we do see accumulation of these small pieces of plastic, um, sometimes called microplastics, mm -hmm. um, in the center of the ocean basins because of the circulation of currents known as the ocean gyres. There are these you know, circulating whirlpool of currents that go around the ocean basins that, um, like a whirlpool, concentrate concentrate things. So there is definitely different concentrations of plastic in different parts of the ocean. Um, yeah. The myth of like you know a garbage patch is. Um, is not is not really true because that plastic breaks down, which is actually more ha hazardous and more challenging to clean up. Right, because it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You can't see it. And, and plastic, we know, um, accumulates toxins. So if there are toxins in the ocean, which we know there are, uh, plastic and different types of plastic will accumulate toxins. It's not really a good situation. <laughs> Over time, SEA has collected a boatload of data 
pardon my pun. Collecting the data is half the fun, but I was wondering if anyone was actually analyzing the data back on land and, well, if they'd found anything cool. Faculty at, at SEA do publish research in the peer-reviewed academic literature, so that's one, one place. Um, it's kind of the first step as scientists of getting your work out there to the academic community. Um, and it's an important step. I think there's a lot of a lot of issues with the general public being able to access the academic literature. Um, but that's one way that that research is is vetted and you know, gets gets out there. Um, and I think our students are another really important vehicle for getting this information out there, right? Like as as you know, you get on board a vessel, you go out to the to the high seas. And you see things that are amazing about our planet, about diversity, about plastic pollution. It's that kind of immersive experience that I think really changes people's minds and perspectives. And students then go back to their families, and friends, and communities, and can tell the story about what what's out there on our amazing blue planet. And it's it's sometimes hard to tell those stories, right? Or Absolutely. like. Do you know that, so there's this past fall, we went out to Tonga, mm-hmm. to a new volcanic landmass. Oh, yeah? With NASA. It was amazing. Mm. Um, this is the second time you've been? Um, yes, this is the second time SEA has been. This was the first time I, I went, and okay. we had, like, a dedicated mission on this um, new landmass. Tonga, Tonga, Hunga Haabai, which is in Tonga. But, um... As we were heading out there, so Tonga is a very geologically active region, just like where we were, you know, in the Kermadex. Tonga is part of that, that like trench system, just a little bit farther north. And there were eruptions as we were, like underwater eruptions as we were making our way to this island. And there were there was so much floating pumice. That's crazy. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think a month before we went out, there was there were reports of. A pumice raft the size of Manhattan. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It had dispersed by the time we got out there, but we definitely saw some. Right. Did you see big chunks or were they all smaller? They were all pretty small. Yeah. 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 It was amazing. I sailed on board the Robert C. Siemens as a student in 2018. One morning, on dawn watch, I was dragging a net in the water to see what samples we could find at 3 a.m. Science stuff. After pouring the contents into a bucket, I realized that we had caught some rocks in our net. In my deliriously sleepy state, I immediately asked a shipmate how deep the water was where we were, convinced that we were about to ground the ship. Considering that we were in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean, the seafloor was thousands of meters below us, and I realized what I was looking at was pumice from underwater volcanic eruptions. What brought you to ocean research in the first place? Um, I think like an uh, interest in science and an interest in our change in climate. I went into a PhD program right after undergraduate research, which see, but when I think back, it seems really crazy. I knew I was interested in the ocean and in primary producers. <laughs> so nerdy, but true. <laughs> You're the chief scientist on board sailing vessels. So you can get more nerdy. <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, so I knew I wanted to study phytoplankton, 
using molecular tools was not necessarily something I knew I wanted to do, but I just kind of kind of led led me down that path by looking at other people in the field who were doing this work that I was interested in. And um, yeah, I landed at um, the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography, had an amazing advisor, her name is Tatiana Rainerson, and just fell in in a really good good spot doing some exciting work on, you know, using molecular, molecular tools to look at diversity of primary producers in the ocean, which are, they're like the, you know, the first line of defense in <laughs> absorbing CO2 and making it available to um, the rest of the ocean ecosystem. Right. Um, and yeah. now I, you know, I do that work out at sea, but I think with SEA, it's a little different than being a scientist on a larger research vessel because we do the full suite of oceanographic sampling. I've been out on, you know, larger research vessels in Antarctica and in the Gulf of Alaska, all over the place. If you go on as a chief scientist on those vessels, you usually have like a very, very narrow scope of the project that you're working on during that cruise. So you might just like culture thousands of diatoms and extract the DNA. Like that's that's what you're doing right. on that trip. And you're, you know, collecting oceanographic data, but you're not doing all of these net toes or meter net toes, collecting mesopelagic fish and, you know, I think on SEA because these vessels, because we have students that are coming on and we have, you know, a range of research interests and long-term data sets, I'm able to um, to sample different parts of the ocean that I didn't even do as a graduate student, which has been really fun for me. Do you have a favorite ship? No, no, I like them both a lot. Because <laughs> they're different. They're I've different. only been on, I've only sailed on one, I've been on both. Yeah, the Siemens is awesome. I really like sailing in the South Pacific, just personally, because it's biologically really interesting. Especially coming into New Zealand waters, it's, it's so so diverse and yeah, it's amazing. The Sargasso Sea for me is like it's like a desert. I mean, it is a, it's a nutrient desert. Um, is so, that natural? Yeah. Yep. So the same thing that accumulates plastic um, cuts the gyre off from nutrients. A lot of nutrients are on the coast. Um, but if you get these, you know, the Sargasso Sea is the only sea that has no land borders. So hmm. it's all basically defined by the ocean currents that surround it. Cuts off that place from, from nutrients. So there's very few nutrients there. There's also a lot of downwelling of currents. So it, um, it doesn't bring nutrients up from the bottom. Hmm. So it's, it's like a desert. SEA has two ships that are currently used for research vessels, the Corwith Kramer in the Atlantic Ocean and the Robert C. Siemens in the Pacific Ocean. Both are 134-foot brigantine tall sailing ships designed to be able to hold around 40 working crew members. This includes both professional crew and students, and conduct research while underway, complete with a lab. What is one of the most interesting things that you found or that surprised you on board one of the ships? I think it's I think it's kind of it's like the little things. It's, you know, the unexpected species that you find in a net tow or you know, last on the last trip we turned the spreader lights on on the, on deck, which are these big. Do we ever put those on on the last? I don't think so. There's like these, they're like stadium lights, 
it's really it lights everything up right. right so at night and there was this huge chain of saps that came up from the bottom but I didn't know what it was at first. It looks like a boa constrictor. Oh my god! <laughs> it was like the largest chain of moving cells, and I didn't even know really That's that. Terrifying. You know, I've just I've never seen that before, and it was it was terrifying yeah. to see this like you know looked like a sea monster. Right. I mean, you definitely, I can see why sailors back in the day claim to see sea monsters because I've seen them too and then you know you think about it for a minute and you're like all right what is that I know that there are boa constrictors in the ocean (laughs) (laughs) there's not an ocean boa constrictor (laughs) it's definitely what it looks like but yeah yeah, I think it's those kind of exciting moments of you know unexpected every day I wake up on those boats and there's something unexpected that happens um, which is yeah really wonderful the ocean is so diverse you know looking through a microscope there's always something that um i haven't seen before yeah phenomena i guess that's that's one thing that i find it really hard to kind of wrap my head around or or like catalog or talk about these like these phenomena that you know i've come across once and I don't know if anyone else has ever come across these things. Right. And I'm never going to be back at the same exact spot at the same time. I may never witness this again. And it's it's hard, these like kind of possibly pretty stochastic, random, beautiful, amazing phenomena. Like how do you, how do you put that in the context of understanding the ocean? Right. It's, yeah, it's really difficult. Like, was it on your trip where we found all of the baby Galapagos Atlanticus nudibranch. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was the most amazing thing ever. I don't think I will ever see that again. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's seen that before. There were, like, hundreds of yeah. these, like, amazing little nudibranchs. Like, how do you... Yeah. So, anyways, that's, that's something that keeps me very intrigued. 